1: Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello Glenn. Hello Seb. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good.
2: I'm back in my own office. Mm-hmm. The last 5 or 6 episodes have been recorded in a room in my home. So after nearly 16 weeks, I'm back in my office and I'm really excited of Actually, changed some of the things in my office now to fit the podcast space in. So
1: it feels like a whole new experience for you. Oh, absolutely! If it's familiar territory, yeah, yeah. Actually, for for regular listeners, you may have noticed. I don't know if I sound better. I might sound clearer though because I have upgraded some equipment. So uh, I think it was maybe two episodes ago. But anyway, we're uh, we're happy to be growing and furthering on our little partnership here. So things are still not normal quote-unquote at least relative to how they were before covid hit all of us how are things in your neck of the woods
2: well a bit like what we've been saying so far the normality of people being out and about is increasing i have certainly become more accustomed to wearing face coverings when i'm out my mom and dad are both quite elderly so when we go to visit them that's been the case for a while but when I go shopping, whatever else. Now, if I go into anywhere where there's people other than in the street, I have a mask, I put my mask on and get on with that. And, and more and more people seem to be starting to do that here in Derry as well. We've talked about this before. It's just that none of us have ever been here before. None of us have had to do this before. For this length of time, people are trying to work their way through. And certainly you see in social media... But there are still people who say, look, this COVID thing is a, a fake. It's a, it's a lot of nonsense. And then a lot of people who, who haven't been across the door in 16 weeks and everything else in between. And again, just how consistent that is with our experiences as helpers, being with people who fit at either end of the spectrum and everything else in between. It's just been curious, what is it that you understand will keep you safe and what is it you're doing to enable you to feel safe when you do... Whatever it is you're doing in the life that you live
1: It's a situation where now just about everyone, whether you're a clinician in a helping profession or not, you probably have a strong opinion about what other people should do oh, yeah. or, or not do yeah and you may also be in the position of trying to get people to do something that they're not doing whether it's directly face to face or whether it's through a tweet or a Facebook post or whatever and it can be hard to step back and think about how one's communication may be helping or, or forcing someone to sort of dig their heels in and, and sure. maintain their position. Yeah. So yeah. So maybe a, an interesting parallel again, as we, we often check in with each other about um, and how am I can really be a very different experience, both for the, for, mm. for both sides, assuming mm. you're in a, a one-to-one conversation, of course.
2: Yeah. It's like anything that's when you investigate investigating any practice, suppose the question you can ask yourself is how did that go you know did telling that person to do that differently did they go about doing it if they did well that might be working if it didn't then that probably isn't working and it's an opportunity for you to reflect on what it is you're doing and perhaps what you might be able to do differently if you want this other person
1: to change because more often people are going to double down and they're going to maybe say it louder or say it slightly <laughs> differently, but it's still the same message in the same way. And and even if people strongly believe that mask wearing is the right thing to do, hmm. again, what you're inviting people to do, Glenn, is, is probably quite worthwhile is, did it work? Hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that anyone needs to change their mind per se, or it's really just thinking about is what I'm trying to do effective? Is it leading to the change that I would like someone to make mm. for whatever the reason? Yeah, it can be really difficult to, to sort of zoom out and yeah. take that perspective. Yeah, yeah.
2: and yeah. I guess that th- those themes will come up in today's conversation when we're exploring motivation and dietetics. And the, the challenges that a dietitian faces when working with people with different situations. Uh, so we're really looking forward to the conversation with Orla today. But before we go on, just remind people about how to contact us on our social media and other platforms. The Instagram account is Talking to Change Podcast. And again, thank you for Maeve for updating that. Uh, we're getting a lot of positive feedback in relation to the posts that you're making. Uh, our Twitter is Change Talking. And our Facebook page is Talking to Change. If you want to contact us by email, it's podcast at glenhines.com.
1: And that would be Maeve Hines. Yes. your oldest, who is yes. uh, heading up our Instagram page uh, yeah. with, with uh, great reviews. Mm. Uh, she might be getting better reviews than we are, quite honestly, Glenn.
2: Possibly, possibly. And yeah. Maeve, and just a shout out to Maeve, who has just had it confirmed that she starts her PhD in clinical psychology in September. So she is well pleased with that. So that's been a dream of her since she's at the age of 14, and
1: it's come to fruition. So congratulations, Maeve. Without further ado, we'll go ahead and introduce our guest for today, Orla Adams. Welcome to the program, Orla.
3: Thank you very much for having me. You know how much I value your podcasts and they've got me through lockdown, so this is an honor to be here today.
1: Well, we very much appreciate all your Twitter love, as it were, and support (laughs) and comments. As we often do here at the start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into MI?
3: My name is Orla Adams, I'm a dietitian, and I'm based in Cardiff in Wales, originally from Belfast, and I've been here for 26 years. And I wonder, Glenn, is this the first two Northern Irish people on the podcast at one time? Do you know what?
1: I think it is? This is a first, this is two Nordies together. <laughs> I was wondering that myself earlier, and so I would say yes, for sure.
3: Yeah, hmm. yeah. <laughs> And it's interesting, Glenn, when you said about your daughter Maeve having that dream since the age of 14, Mm. I discovered the profession of dietetics at the age of 14, and that was my focus. I worked and worked to get there, to get to university, to qualify. I decided this was the role I wanted to be in. So I qualified in 98, started out in practice, and came out very enthusiastic, um, a little bit naïve. Less wrinkles than I have now and quickly discovered, I would say, within even the first year or two, that all this fantastic advice, evidence-based information, um, all the good tips that I could give people, they just felt like they were falling on deaf ears. And so it wasn't long before I started to feel frustrated, um, ineffective. I wondered, oh, God, this is the career that I've worked for and now it's not something I enjoy. And so I started over the years to consider a move out of dietetics to something completely different. And it was not just me that felt that way. I was in a department where we all felt it was a struggle. And as much as we wanted to help people change, we just didn't have the skill set for it. So it was around, I would say, 2006 that I first heard about motivational interviewing as part of another course. And I have the pleasure of living in Cardiff, which is just down the road from Steve Rolnick. And he was delivering a course here. So I thought, I'll go along and see what it's like. And I remember sitting in the first hour of that course and thinking, this is what I've searched for. This is the thing. And from that day forward, then just started to learn it, understand it and practice it. And yeah, it's become my career, my life. I love the job that I do. I'll never leave the NHS. It's completely changed everything for
2: me. That must have been quite a scary experience for you, having had the dream of becoming a dietitian, having worked as hard and focused as much as you did, to get to the point where you're actually considering, this is not for me, this is the wrong place, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And then the relief that arose when you met Steve and after now you realised that he was offering you something that, Clearly reignited your enthusiasm for what it is you do, and it's clear in the way you're describing and how you're speaking about what it is you do. So, what was it that that you heard in that first hour that changed everything for you?
3: It was the even looking at the program. I sat, looked at the program. I was in a room of about it was a huge conference, about hundred people. I felt intimidated. I thought, why am I as a dietitian in this room? There's all psychologists, um, you know, the drug and alcohol team, social services. I felt that this is beyond me, maybe. But even as Steve started to speak about MI and where it came from and the heart and spirit of it, I just thought, yeah, I can let go of my fears and worries and just focus on what I can get from this then. And so they hooked me in pretty quickly.
1: The spirit, I mean, one consistent thread throughout our episodes, I think, is just how much the MI spirit has impacted people, whether it was those first moments of learning about MI or what has kept people really fulfilled at work and I imagine effective in their work is to have the spirit as this sort of key framework or anchor points that guide them through. So what was it about maybe in particular about the spirit or any of the particular spirit elements that spoke to you?
3: It was empathy, to be able to express empathy. I knew I felt it and in my training, we were almost encouraged not to open up any of these emotions, not to explore them, don't go there, keep it as advice given. And here was an approach then that was saying, you can express this empathy with people. And when I started to do that, even though I was scared of doing it and what might come at me, because I'm not psychology trained, I just felt this connection with people and I felt that they got the connection with me. And when we had that, then they started to tell me more and they started to talk more about change and they were more engaged with it. And so that really stood out. The other one that's really changed me is acceptance. To accept people for who they are, the way they live their lives, the way they choose to do things. And I cringe when I think back to how judgmental I was in the early days the thoughts that used to run through my mind and now to sit with people and completely accept them has completely changed things as well and they feel that and i know they do
2: so it seems that what has changed most for you to get reinvigorated is yourself that Mm. the way you think and what it is you you understand you're doing and what it is you understand you're looking at has changed and as a consequence of that your patience changed with you or as as a consequence of that
3: Completely. I went into that first course that Steve delivered, expecting to learn skills a set of skills that I would practice, things that I would say and do that would motivate and change people. I never went into it expecting that I would shift my whole, almost my whole being and the way I thought about people and the way I see myself, that floored me. And that was the biggest learning that I've got. And that still happens for me. You know, that's ongoing really. But yeah, that was the, the biggest change that I've noticed. The skills sort of settled in and fell into place, but... The biggest impact was the way I was with people.
1: The relationships themselves, the quality of the relationships deepened your understanding of yourself, or at least the way you thought about yourself even changed. And those skills you said came later, I imagine important that you felt and really understood the spirit so that the skills could kind of rest on top of them. The skills didn't exist in some vacuum where it didn't matter what the relationship was like, that it's really important that those skills occur in the context of this MI consistent relationship.
3: These skills then gave me the way to express empathy to people, to say things in a way that let them feel felt understood. And I always remember very clumsily trying to express empathy before I went on any training and what I ended up doing was just generating sustained talk out of people. Oh, that's really tough doing that, and yeah, it's a nightmare, isn't it? And God, don't, going on a diet's the worst thing in the world. That was me trying to express empathy, and it just wasn't helpful. And so the skills gave me the way to express it in an eloquent, sometimes very quick way, and in a way that I felt confident when I said it. So, I think the more I sort of became confident in the skills and I could express things to people and, and I could ask these open questions in a, a concise way is that the conversation was clear. We both knew where we were going. There was no misunderstandings between us or assumptions anymore.
2: So as you describe what you're saying, it seems like the, what happened first was that the motivation to inspire created more space for you to practice what it was you wanted to do, which was to help people. And then with the skills and the development of that, How you articulated your compassion, your care, your desire for other people to be well, that developed as your skillfulness improved. How you articulated the empathy that was already in you and was always in you. You just had a language that allowed it to flow in a way that meant that the client experienced it, the patient experienced it as genuine and meaningful. And when that happened things started to happen again, just the idea that you were now having a dance. You were now dancing with this person rather than wrestling with them. When you started using it and and your sophistication started to improve, what was it you started to see that reinforced, this doesn't just feel right, this is actually right, this is working for my patients?
3: They were more engaged, so they actually came back to a follow-up appointment. Right. And even when they were leaving the room, I knew they would come back, whereas before it was, I don't think I'm ever going to see you again. And so in my heart, I thought, you are going to come back. And they did. And they would walk in and they would say, I've been looking forward to coming back. And I thought, good God, never heard anyone say that before. And the language and the way they spoke, and they were very open, telling me things that they then said, I've never told anyone this before. Nobody understands me. Everybody tells me just to sort this out and get on with it. And so... Their engagement, their coming back, and the way they spoke to me, just I thought, this is really working. This is happening.
1: Something that Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick both say quite a bit at our forums and in other platforms is the best teacher of MI is the client or the patient. And the the best way to tell if what you're doing is helpful or working is what you're getting back. And while Change Talk and Sustain Talk is just one way of being able to tell, and it sounded like you were picking up on a lot of things that the client was either showing up for, literally, uh, coming back for repeat visits, and uh, but also in, in how they were engaging in the discussion as signals for you. And I wonder, you said something just a moment ago also that you thought that you were expressing empathy. And really what was happening was you were just kind of staying stuck in sustained talk. Because it might be helpful for some people to hear what changed even in the in that sort of skill-based way. Like what was An example of empathy as you thought you knew it or was what you were trying to do before. And then how am I informed a different way of expressing empathy that you found to be more effective?
3: Say someone would say to me, I can't bear the thought of going on a diet again. I've done this a hundred times. I've lost weight and regained it. It's just horrendous. Oh, the thought of it, I'm broken. I would go gone, Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough and it's hard going being on a diet and, you know, and it's it's restrictive and all of the things that I was saying that I was thinking, I'm trying to get beside you. And I'm trying to kind to let you know that I understand you without just saying, Oh, I understand you. And so the, as then I was introduced to expressing empathy on the courses, then I, I tried it out and it would sound more like you struggle with this. You struggle with the thought of going back to that place again and then other skills would come in. So I would empathise and then affirm and I would I would shift it around a bit. But definitely that where I would I would just sit with them and go, you're struggling with this. And that would be as much as I would say and they would go, I really am. And I would watch their shoulders drop. It was almost like this relief that someone they thought someone gets me. Someone's not just going to tell me what to do and mm. to eat less and move more and do these things. Here's someone that's on board in my head a little bit with this.
2: You're describing that... That while the weight may have been a difficulty, the thing that was challenging at the minute was the thought of doing it again. Just that, oh my God! And just by acknowledging that, that the need is in the moment. It's just that making that connection and and being heard. This is you know this you're struggling with this, and the struggle is the issue rather than the diet. What else did you notice then about what you were doing and and how you were helping? Develop your own experience of empathy, and then very importantly, the expression of empathy that you have seen really beneficial for for your patients.
3: I think one of the big challenges for me was the words to build up this vocab that I had because. In the early days, I find I stuck with the same words all the time. Um, And then I began to think, this this patient has heard me say this 100 times, this isn't good. And so it would be things like, yeah, you're struggling with this and you find that it really drags you down when you find that you go off the path that you want to go on. So I really had to expand my vocabulary and that involved... Watching more videos, going to more courses, reading more Stephen Bill's books, and becoming more familiar with empathy and the psychology because that's not training we had. So we weren't familiar with the language. We weren't even familiar with the psychology behind it all. So I had to learn a lot and had to be a bit brave. There was times where I thought, I know they've got something to tell me, and have I got the strength to hear it? Um, have I got the time? There's someone sitting outside and. The expressions of empathy and being empathic was, it's still an ongoing journey for dieticians in particular who aren't trained in this.
1: Another thing that struck me there was MI has helped sort of quiet your mind a bit or quiet the sort of the room or whatever, the buzz that might be there of, oh no, what's going on? Or they're not saying the right things or there's people waiting or do I know what to say and Not that it happened overnight, but I imagine with that that really strong dedication that you have, it helped you grow your skills and then infuse the work with more confidence, of course. And with language too, or the vocab, I, I imagine part of it was also a development of what you were listening for or becoming much more attuned to what patients are saying and how to then respond to that in more strategic ways. Uh, so there's sort of the empathic part, but then there's the, st- the strategy of MI. And I wonder if you could speak a bit to that part.
3: As I learned more and more, and everyone, or well, anyone who knows me, and in particular Steve, was like, oh my God, that dietitian's back again this year. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? So I kept rocking up at his courses because they were local, I could do it. And I just felt I needed to go back to the course to pick up another bit that I felt I could take on board. And so as the years have passed, and I've picked up the four processes and I'm able to move people together with me. I find I've become more precise and concise in my reflections. They're more cultivating change talk. I'm I'm not, you know, I'm softening down that sustained talk. Um there's multiple processes going on in my mind. And when you say Seb about quieting your mind, it is, it's true. I've got rid of all the other stuff, and I'm able to focus on MI and that person. And still hear their story. And I'm aware there's multiple things going on. But I'm really with them. And that's different.
2: You have been on. And you continue to be on a journey of discovery and development yourself. And I think that that might be very heartening for people. As as they listen to you describe that. That going to Steve's first uh, seminar lecture. That you got something there. And it sounds like each time you go back. You get something else. Or you you understand something familiar from a different perspective. And that. The jigsaw pieces are coming together and there's a willingness on your part to go back, to go back, to go back. And in many ways, the very thing that we're inviting our clients and patients to do when they're working with us is to come back Mm -hmm. and to continue the journey that one or two visits may get them started. If it's in the nature of our work, they're welcome to come back for more. And when things arise, we're happy to support them with it. And it sounds like you're willing to do that for yourself as you grow Within the area of the world, the area of your world, that's important to you as well.
3: Yeah, spot on. And I think my learning journey, I see it in my clients as well and the people I work with because my brain's able to take a certain thing at a certain time. And so I know for them that there's information that they'll have had multiple times, but then it's the right moment and it fits for them and it feels doable. And so I have... Now, a patience in the work that I do that I never had before. I always felt we need to be moving. We need to be moving forward. You need to be changing and setting goals. And now I've got a patience where I sit back and I let them take on board what they feel they can at that time then.
1: Yeah, there's a a quote which I know I'm going to get wrong, but it's something like if you approach A conversation as if you had all the time in the world, it'll be much more efficient and it'll go quicker. And the opposite is true. The words are Mm -hmm. people can get the point. So that's what certainly what it sounds like. The, The sort of quieting and the patience is the word that you use there has allowed for maybe more freedom to pick and choose the moments where you give advice or freedom to explore somebody's struggle in a way that you may have felt obligated or scared to explore before. We, when we were talking before um, before starting the, the episode, you were sharing a bit of the, the some of the specific clinical situations that you find yourself in and, and finding that MI is quite helpful with them. So maybe you can start sharing some of those for us.
3: Yeah, so in my all my years of practice, I've been in different roles. And so it can vary from people who are receiving their nutrition through a tube at home to the person who's, and not taking their insulin and developing complications to the person who's selective eating, limited to three foods. So there's a huge variety, and I think MI really stands out. For those moments, say selective eating, and this is someone who has developed a really dysfunctional, disordered relationship with food to limit themselves to maybe three, four foods, and that's it. That's all their diet allows. And so there's one particular person that stands out and And they said, it's spam, jam and ham. That's all I eat. In my 70s, that's never going to change. So I don't know why I'm here. I've been sent. I think I better just leave. And that was their words when they walked in. And they were having severe health problems from this, as you can imagine. You know, 50 years, maybe more than that, of eating three foods. And so I sat with them and I said, and you did come today. And I'm just curious, what brought you in my door? And they said the words, I suppose I still have some hope that this might change, even at this stage of my life. And we carried on. And by the end of the, I have 40 minutes with people, which I know is a luxury, but by the end of the 40 minutes, she said, what have you done to me? She said, is this magic? She said, is that, is that what it is? Because something's really different. I've never spoken to anybody like I have to you. You seem to get this. And now I feel hopeful I can change. And we had three further appointments over the course of three months. And by the end of it, they had introduced about another 10 foods, the possibility of going on holiday had come back again and um, the possibility of socialising with friends had happened in between appointments and all of that had stopped because of this relationship and the embarrassment around it. And so she still, even at her last appointment, she walked out and said, what, what did you do to me? <laughs> I was going, We just talked and I just listened. And so she, that person really stood out for me because it really, like it was, she said, this is going to change the rest of my life now for the years that I have. Mm. And that was MI that I, if I wasn't using MI and I wasn't trained in it, I would have said, well, what we need to do is this and you really need to change this because your health's really suffering. And I would have gone in for the kill, really, to try and persuade change. I would have used every roadblock available. And they probably would never have walked back in the door. And so when you have moments like that, I remember walking upstairs to my colleagues and just saying, I can't believe that. That's, that's blown me away, that to sit and listen to somebody and you see skills has had such a big impact on them.
2: Such a profound example. As you described her de- saying, I, I, I hope, and almost mm-hmm. the sadness in that statement that for, for 30 years, it's been like yeah. this. And you know what, there's, but there's still a light that's trying to come through here. And it sounds like by the end of your first conversation with her, she had witnessed you see the light in her. And that in itself instilled some sort of optimism and potential within her that over the next three sessions brought her to a place where she felt able to make the changes for herself in a way that were manageable and doable. I imagine people are understand why you walking up the stairs we're potentially experiencing the same thing as she probably was as she was walking away going, what, just happened?" <laughs> but both of these it sounds like we're both experiencing a form of elation, space, experience, freedom, and uh, choicefulness. And when we spoke to Professor Ryan, that was one of the things he talked about, is that ability to have choice in our lives and that autonomy that we have. And, and you're putting this down to your ability to be with them and just be curious and to be... You know, what do you want?
3: And I think, isn't that what keeps us striving to develop uh, my skills more? Because when you see moments like that, that was purely because I had these skills and the heart and spirit that I had experienced through all of those years of attending courses and being around mint colleagues. And it happened quickly, you know, three sessions as that's pretty quick input for such a turnaround. So yeah, those are the moments where you go, I've got to refine this and and get better.
1: I'm thinking about listeners that are maybe early learners, early adopters in MI and may still be wondering how to use the magic that you were using and and what your client uh, resonated with. So there's that. And also most people, I imagine, just like you described, their initial training was probably around the information, the critical pieces of data, the how to interpret data and how to, and what conclusions that lead to. And then there's like this assumption that people will change if they know what we know. Mm. And of course, we know that that's not really true. So I imagine you did some version of holding back, like you probably had the answers. You probably knew from a health standpoint and from a dietetic standpoint what would be more helpful for that person but i'm quite certain you didn't go there right away if you remember those early conversations or that first session like what do you remember from a skill standpoint or or some specific things that you said or specific questions that you found to be particularly helpful
3: i find being curious and that's what it was i was curious about how this person had managed to cope with this that was almost where I went with that first session was saying you've lived all of these years how have you coped with that what have you done that has been a difficult path to follow you know and so it really drawn out the strengths and saying using affirmation and saying you've got a huge amount of strength to be able to carry on and to come here today and to even consider the thought of this changing because it's frightening for you and so I remember just Sitting in a place where I want to find out more about you. I'm curious about you, about what has happened to lead to this place. And so I would have said in that first appointment, it was largely a lot of me asking open questions out of curiosity to explore it and to reflect back the things that I was hearing. Well, my intention was then to generate some change talk from it. But yeah, just staying in the curious place and not coming up with any suggestions or information or advice at that point. Just sit with them. And that's scary because Mm. in the NHS, you have limited time, you have limited appointments, you're under pressure to have outcomes. And so it's really scary for anyone in healthcare NHS to have that slow pace sit back listen without thinking right I need to get you to decide to change this and I need to give you information and you must walk out the door understanding how severe this is and that you must change and so yeah like you said earlier Seb you know if our intention is to not go into the conversation too quickly or to push it too fast and we slow down more comes out Mm. because she had change talk every reflection that I gave things along the lines of you've had enough of this you want to get back out there and live your life you want to eat with friends? And I kept saying these really concise as I picked up her language. And it was very much sustained talk. It was like, I can't go out and eat with friends anymore. It's very embarrassing. And I strategically was saying, you want to eat with friends? she go, yeah, I do. Mm. So, yeah, there was, I didn't feel like I did much, but it was her that was coming up with mm. all of the reasons to change. and. Mm and why she wanted to change it.
2: What you brought to that was not just a curiosity, but it was a genuineness that the curiosity that you had was really about her and how she had done this, that there was no trap being set, there was no hidden agenda, that in your exploration of how she got this far, you got an insight into who she was mm. and the strengths and her talents that assisted her to get that. And her noticing you paying attention was in itself was, quite a novel experience for her. And I imagine allowed her to feel safe to come towards you. And the closer she came to the less effort you had to make to get Mm. more information, to help you understand. And that lovely recrafting of the understanding, which was, I feel frustrated because I can't do that. That that implicit Mm. in the frustration is a desire to do it another way. Mm. And you were able to hear what the desire was and then articulate it for her and then follow that path. And again, Mm. that's, that's, I imagine it's very reassuring for people out there to know that this dance gets more sophisticated with time, that the more classes you go to, the more you practice. It can start off quite concretely that you're going, okay, I have to ask open-ended questions. This is is an affirmation. This is what a a reflective statement sounds like. But with time and with practice, that eventually they become a bit more normal, like any other skill that you've had. And I'm just wondering... Going to the classes was one thing, but I'm just wondering what was happening between the classes that helped you to practice and develop in a way that helped you get to where you are now?
3: Well, I think, Seb, you, you said it, didn't you? You know, our clients are the best teachers. Bill and Steve always say that and still say it. We learn from the people we sit in front, so we see their reactions to what we say. And in between rocking up at all Steve's courses, I would go back to the books and read a bit, that practice and reflect on it watch the videos, do as much as I could. But there's one point that really stands out that I think was a complete change in path for me. And Steve and his wife Nina, Goba, had, uh, were delivering a very small workshop on Cardiff. There were about 12 of us in it. Everyone else was psychologists and drugs and alcohol teams. I walked in there going, oh my God, what am I doing? This I'm going to mortify myself in here and really show myself up. And we were given actors, we were recorded the conversation was, the, the role play was set up, uh, mum who had been drinking and was in distress at the school gate and that she was being brought in to speak to one of the support workers or counsellor in the school. And I was thinking, I don't do alcohol counselling. <laughs> do you know what? And I sort of walked into it going, I'm just going to just go with the flow and see what happens. And so it was all recorded. And about a week after the workshop, Steve emailed me and he said, I've just listened to your recording. And see, getting that feedback from Steve and Nina, my confidence just grew and I thought, God, I am doing this and I can do it. And so I became a bit more persistent in my efforts to try and reflect and keep going. And so it always stood in my mind that having feedback and support and supervision and coaching are so vital in all of this. I was floundering before that. I was a bit like, I don't think I'm doing this. I don't think I'm very good. The patients seem a bit happier they're making changes, but am I doing MI? I have no idea. But getting that confirmation from Steve and Nina was a huge turning point for me.
1: So for people that are out there that are learners of MI who maybe have taken a workshop, I imagine they've heard also about the benefits of getting individualized feedback with recordings, Mm -hmm. as anxiety provoking as that might feel to really be exposed in that way. But that's certainly something we see time and time again. And even there's research to support the importance of that kind of feedback to really grow one's skill set. You've alluded on a few occasions, Orla, to being in a room with a bunch of psychologists and counselors and, and clearly have come out of those experiences as, as far as from an MI standpoint to do MI much like anyone else would, perhaps even better. I mean, you certainly caught Steve's attention with it. It's just making me think about what we learn in our respective training. Experiences. You know, myself as a psychologist, Glenn as a social worker, and you as a dietician, mm-hmm. we probably spent a great deal of time learning about theory and lear- learning about how to diagnose things or interpret data or consider problems and then kind of jump to the solutions for those problems. But the real common factor thread throughout so many of the helping professions is the conversation. And mm-hmm. it just seems like one of the wonderful things that MI has brought to so many helping professions is this is how you communicate the things that you've learned to the people who are struggling and however they're struggling. It's just another really neat example of that that you're you're bringing to the conversation today, Orla.
3: What's it? Imposter syndrome, isn't it? You know where, and I always sort of felt so much respect for all of these counsellors and psychologists and social workers in the room because I knew they were dealing with really heavy conversations all the time. And I sort of felt like I was coming in the background talking about food and diet, didn't seem that important. But as I've worked more with the clients that I work with and spent time empathising with them and hearing their stories, the stuff that I'm hearing has been... I mean, it's been a privilege to hear the things that people tell me and that they feel that they can tell me and I didn't, they know they trust me with it. But having MI, being around the trainings where there are psychologists and all the social workers and counsellors, they have helped and support me in how I deal with this, how I respond to it. You know, it's it's always a supportive environment, the learning of MI and, and knowing that any recording that you hand in to any, I suppose, Minty or anybody, you're going to get a really positive, strength-based feedback from it that supports you
2: so something about the culture within which you experience the learning of motivational interviewing itself is part of learning motivational interviewing that mm. a bit like the fellowship of AA that when you get the 12th step you pass it on it sounds mm. like the, what, what you do as you internalize the spirit of motivational interviewing is that then it becomes part of sharing that you're not only just your patients or your clients are experiencing it, but more and more just everybody you meet Experiences a much more patient, mm. focused, curious you, and that draws them towards you. And for some of them, that those are teachable moments when they ask you, what are you doing and why are you doing it? And that's the moment where we can teach people a bit more about motivational doing. But it sounds like, again, it's just that going back and back and back and back and being around those people that supported you achieve what it was that you wanted. And just, you know, that throughout this, that dedication that you have, identify from being a 14-year-old girl Mm -hmm. just keeps coming back. The dedication and the willingness, the effort you're prepared to put in to help you achieve what it is that you're trying to achieve and seeking the support in whatever means that may be, whether it's with people, Mm -hmm. whether it's with video or whether it's with books or personal reflection, Mm -hmm. these are all things that you have learned, have helped you to get to where you are in relation to your own development and Mm -hmm. your practice. And I'm just wondering, given the fact that you know, you, it sounds like you've got a clear vision of the of where you'd hope to get to. And I'm just wondering, where do you see that going in the future? What's where do, what are you working on at the minute towards enhancing or developing for yourself and as an MI practitioner?
3: There's a couple of things. Listening to the podcast, like you know, me, my responses have been, oh my God, it's sparking all of these different things for me. And so I suppose there's part of my head that's always thinking, right, what's the next step? Where do I refine it and develop it further? And I think learning coding in MI, I noticed that it's having a real impact on my skills. So that's one thing. The other thing to enhance the work I do, and it came from the podcast as well, was to start to learn acceptance and commitment therapy. And so I feel like I've got this grind in an MI and now I am ready to look at another therapeutic approach to enhance it even further. But there's various, there's always various things going on in my mind to say, right, we're forward. But the focus is always we're forward for the patient. Mm. Like if I feel uh, we're getting so far and there's further we can go, then there's something I have to learn that will, or change or develop that will help them then.
1: Two of you, I assume mostly you're in one-on-one conversations as you sort of get to a place and make, you know, a good bit of progress, there's a bit further that they have to go or bit the next stage of their journey or their experience or their life. And, and it's led you to explore how you might enhance what you already know. Again, as a sort of a prompt or a way to learn something about yourself through your mm-hmm. patients, that there's more to grow and what the next thing might be. And mm-hmm. so something like acceptance and commitment therapy, you feel like adding that to your professional skill set will help your patients grow. And I wonder as, so there may be other people in dietetics listening, where do you see either acceptance and commitment therapy helping you or maybe viewing it a different way? Like where do you see the field of dietetics now and the challenges that exist for someone who's been in the field like you have and where some of the new developments might be in the field?
3: While I have gone on the path of motivational interviewing, and that was largely of my own volition, really, that I searched this out for myself. I've supported my colleagues in doing it. MI isn't throughout all of dietetics. It's not in the you know, the theories in the undergrad courses. For some of the universities that I know, and may be further advanced than others. But that's certainly sending student dietitians out into practice with some of these skills already. Rather than letting them come out like I did, and then trying to stumble and then trying to relearn a different way, I think that's the challenge. Is it becoming an undergraduate core part of dietetic training? I hear students come out and they sit with me and they say, "Why well, haven't heard this before? Why am I coming out on placement and hearing that now? Why isn't this in university?" And I say, "It's it's a shift, you know, it's, and it's a shift that will take time within dietetics." It doesn't have to be MI, maybe it's more of a helpful conversation, being empathic, thinking about the spirit and acceptance of it might be a shift. Mm. Because I think the thought of a university taking on and trying to train dietitians, student dietitians in MI would be pretty overwhelming. Mm. Um, It would be a huge shift for them, so... I think it being undergrad and being core in dietetics to say if someone knows they're going into dietetics is that what they're going to learn? Part of it is how they speak to people about behaviour change and mm. changes and belief changes and you know all of that stuff.
2: And in some ways, that you're identifying that if we understand motivation to be a counselling intervention, that a lot of people are going. I'm not a counsellor. You know mm. that that takes years and years of training. But when we mm. say, what if we explored good helping? And we looked at what is it that people respond to from a good helper and explored from that perspective that more often than not, what we're going to identify is the core elements of motivational interviewing. And even the the fact that you're describing, oh my God, there's a lot of psychologists in this room, seems to suggest that the culture in which that you were trained as a dietitian was, they are something other than us Mm -hmm. and they do a thing that we don't do. And here I am in their world as -hmm. an imposter And it sounds like that's part of what you will hope will change for future generations of dietitians. And certainly from a social work perspective, I can see that as well, which is, you know, we don't have time for this. But it's about down to what it is that drew you into dietetics, that drew me into social work, that drew Seb into psychology, which was a desire to be helpful. And how do we foster an environment where what it is that we want to achieve can be achieved in a way that is achievable and reachable for us? but in an environment that supports us feel safe to try new things because in that environment we can then bring that experience into our client. We're actually inviting them. We want you to try some new things, but we've gone first. We've tried some new things ourselves, and that's why we're creating that space, that Rogerian environment where I'm me and you're you. Let's see what happens. That in itself is quite a shift, but I think that given... The popularity and the development of motivational doing across so many different realms can give us hope—not that motivational interviewing is taking over the world, but mm. that people, more and more people, are learning how to express their empathy in a way that's meaningful for them as a practitioner and very significantly for their patients. And we can see a growth in well-being over shorter periods of time, which will please the, the administrators as well. I imagine when we get to this point in the conversation, one of the things we're curious about is what if anything is going on that's new for you that may or may not be motivational interviewing oriented but something that's catching your attention
3: well it is the learning the acceptance and commitment therapy that's Mm. the thing at the minute really so i'm trying to get my head around it a bit take that on board and life you know as you were talking about the impact of covid life changed a lot i was redeployed into the surge hospital and i've come back out of it again and And so uh, sort of I think I'm coming down the other side of that where I can refocus on learning this um, and give sort of brain space to it. But that's where I want to go. I want to learn more about it. I want to see how it works, what it is about to act. That's going to be beneficial to my work. So that is my focus for a while. Well, I have to complete it by October. I have to hand in all my work. So
1: (laughs) you're on a similar journey as me professionally, I think, because. For me, MI was mid-2000s, entered the Mint in 2008, and then it was maybe five-ish or so years later, I said, what's this ACT thing that I heard about many years ago? And and I started a, a kind of tangent from my MI work to learn about ACT. And I, I guess we've been talking about how MI can fit so well across disciplines from psychology, social work, counseling And dietetics and others acts has a similar quality of I mean, it's, it's referred to as a trans diagnostic approach. It is something that isn't just for people with depression or anxiety or whatever it might be. It's, it is something that kind of gets more to the human condition and places where humans get stuck. And derail them from living a fulfilling life. And so it's great and interesting to hear you talk about ACT as as sort of this next phase for yourself. And um, maybe one of these days we can have a conversation at a forum. Hopefully we'll do it in person, but how you're finding MI and ACT to sort of blend together. Glenn and I have talked about having an ACT episode or two for the Mm -hmm. podcast. So it is something that we're quite curious about. And so Mm -hmm. people might be wondering out there, what is ACT? So not to turn it into a big, long ACT, portion right here. Can you speak briefly to what you find it, how it resonates both to dietetics and maybe how it might fit with MI?
3: As I've been reading and learning about it, I'm thinking about the client group I work with. The clients that I work with when it comes to sort of disordered eating patterns or relationships that are dysfunctional around food, there's a lot of stress around it and feelings that come with it that then perpetuate the cycle with food and using it as a a way to beat themselves up and self-harm but also to numb out feelings and so I've read bits about to sit with feelings and to accept them and to go with the the distress and then also to look at these hooks the things that they do that keep the behaviour going and stop them making change. And so, so far, what I've got into I'm thinking, oh, great, this is going to be helpful discussions that I have with the clients I work with, accepting distressing and feelings and finding other helpful ways to move forward then as well.
2: For someone who hasn't studied ACT, it sounds like essentially what you're inviting a client to do is almost to become their own therapist practitioner to be able to be with their distressed self in a way that's about being curious about it rather than trying to fix it or change it or criticise it. That it's about going, oh my God, it must be really hard for this part of me. And being curious, what does that person need? What does that part of me need from me in this moment? And then endeavour to practise that with them. So it's almost like, you're modelling how to be with themselves. And and remember, you know, Stan talking to us about compassion and then self-compassion and ability to show to others and to show to ourselves that curiosity, that space, that acceptance and love, but also of the warts and all, that ability to tolerate the bits of myself that, you know, for years I haven't really liked. And now I'm being invited to turn and face that part of myself and go, it's nice to meet you. It's Well, it's, I'm interested to know you and find out why that person's still around, why that person hasn't left me, why that part of me just keeps following me around. So really interesting and certainly has triggered, from you saying that, has triggered a curiosity here to maybe go and explore as part of our Beyond MI aspect of the podcast, where does ACT fit and what knits the two approaches closer together. So thank you for sharing that. That's fantastic. And in relation to sharing, we also ask our guests if at the end of the podcast and people hear you and they want to reach out to you and maybe have questions or they want to talk to you a bit more about what it is you're saying. Are you happy for people to reach out? And if you are, how can they do that to speak directly to you?
3: Yeah, sure. So if people want to email me, you can email me on Orla Adams 76 at gmail.com so it's o-r-l-a-a-d-a-m-s 76 at gmail.com and a bit like your other guests I remember Chris Wagner saying it. he said keep pestering me I, I won't get annoyed if you keep if I don't respond within a day or two do pester me again I won't get annoyed about it but it will prompt me to come back I've hmm. got quite a lot with mint at the minute so um There's a lot in my head. I'm also on Twitter at Orla Adams and people often message me in it and I pick it up quite quickly. So, yeah, there's a couple of ways.
2: Thank you. And again, just to remind people if they want to contact us on Twitter, it's at Change Talking. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. And emails or comments or suggestions for future episodes directly to myself and Seb, it's podcast at glenhines.com, G L E N N H I N D S.com.
1: Rates and reviews are appreciated. We'd love fours and fives. If you have ones, twos, and threes, we'll accept them, of course, and happy to get all kinds of feedback. Orla, wonderful conversation, wonderful to talk with you today, and thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.